I do think we need to empower clinicians so they just spend as much time as possible with patients, right? And there are so many areas that we can automate, but we'll never replace clinicians. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, innovators. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I'm really excited. We got Pablo Pantaleone in the house. Pablo, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, David, for the invitation. Looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. I hope I did your last name justice. Pablo, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? I'm the chief digital officer at LifeStance Health, which is the largest outpatient mental health provider. So we have a hybrid model in person and virtual presence in 33 states, over 6,000 clinicians. Yeah, it's such great work that you guys do. You know, everybody that listens knows that my mom's the founder and of a mental health facility in, in New Jersey. So you know, really passionate and, you know, really excited to have this conversation. So Pablo, we, I like to start the episode with just one piece of actionable advice you might look to leave the listeners with today. Well, yeah, my piece of advice is just surround yourself with people that are smarter than you and, you know, that they're always there to tell you what others don't, right? And I like my team to push me uh, as well as I like, you know, there's this healthy tension always based on trust. I know it sounds like, you know, a topic, but I think that's the biggest piece of advice for me. Yeah. And I feel like not everyone, you know, is a proponent of that. I think it's a tenant of servant leadership. It's a quality of a humble leader. And that's not always what you see. So I think it's great advice, likely per your upbringing and, and tenants as a person. So I am interested in learning more, Pablo, about how you started out, I think you mentioned you're from Spain, right? And kind of just how you got to the point you are in your career today. Sure. Well, the, feel free to interrupt me. You know, again, I'm from Spain. I like to, you know, talk, but yeah, I started in Spain. Then I went to college in Switzerland, you know, after finishing my bachelor's degree in Spain. And then while I was in Switzerland and you know, I had to find a place to leave, I was also 
looking for an internship there. And what I learned is everybody was striving with the same problem, you know, in Switzerland and everywhere in Europe. So this is where I found an opportunity and I started my first company. So it was a marketplace to offer housing, internships, and language courses to students all around Europe. And if we want to do, you know, first go to Spain and then, you know, we end up creating a network of 42 cities in 14 countries. So it was pretty fun. I made so many mistakes, you know, I was very young back then, and, but it was good. It was good. And we ended up selling the business again, nothing crazy, but it was kind of back then I was very young, right? And good money and good learning. And so we just decided to move on. I, I was proud of the product we built, but as I said, you know, many mistakes of assuming things versus chatting with users and e-trading. How old were you at the time? I was 19 when I started. I, I mean, give me a break. I mean, the stuff that I learned, the amount of times I failed and stumbled personally and professionally between 20 and 30, for example, a lot of lessons during that time period. So I can only imagine, you know, 19 trying to pull that off. So it's a, it's a big deal as an entrepreneur too. I have a lot of respect for someone who built something and successfully exited. So. Thank you for saying that. As he said, you know, many mistakes, but it was a good experience. It was an exit, not a crazy exit, like they said, but it was good at the time. Right. And again, it was in Europe, not in the US. Yeah. And then from there, I just, funny enough, I'm good with numbers. So yeah, I decided to start working in investment bank. Don't ask me why. It was just because I had a bunch of friends and all my people in my family, the opportunity just was in front of me. So I gave it a try. And after six months, I had this funny conversation with my boss at the time where she said, I think I'm thinking about promoting you. And my immediate reaction was, I think I, I want to quit. And not because it was, I think and it was junior level, right? When I entered, right? But look, it was good, but it was not fulfilling, right? It was good. At, you know, what I was doing, you know, it didn't feel good for me. So this is why I had an honest conversation with my boss at the time. And we planned a transition and, and that's what I ended up doing. From there, I started my next business in healthcare because I come from a family of clinicians, although I'm not a you know clinician myself. And it's a classical story where, you know, a good friend who used to work in tech for a lab associated with Google said, my father is a doctor. And the EHR that he has, it's not working. He asked me to fix it. And again, my friend ended up saying, well, can I build a new one? Because it was easier to build a new one than just to fix it. When I say EHR, hold on, it was small system for, you know, kind of outpatient clinics, right? So nothing crazy. It was not an epic, right? Or a surgery, but we end up working together. I started helping him while I was still in finance, working for the other company. It was very appealing talking with all these clinicians and patients. And as I said, that was way more fulfilling. I decided to quit the other company and, you know, started hundred percent working with my friend on this other company. Again, it was in Spain, classical story also where we learned you know, the market was very crowded. It was very hard to scale a business there selling to you know, individual clinicians. So we saw a big gap 
I'm talking about, again, that was 2010, I believe, 2011, you know, in the patient monitoring space in between visits, right? Where digital health was not a, such a big thing, right? Or, or at least people were calling digital health, you know, a different concept. So we end up, you know, moving the software to more, you know, what happens in between visits, right? Connecting devices and packing. And we end up designing a system to empower patients to follow up with their care plan, you know, digital care plan, medication, you know, exercises, whatever was needed for different chronic health conditions. And then it's where we also started working mental health. I got some exposure to mental health. It was very fulfilling to hear patients, you know, using our product and how it's helping them. So from there, we scaled the company. We raised some money. We moved the headquarters to San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco. And one day we had operations in the US, in Europe. I remember that board meeting really well, where some investors were a little bit concerned about the money we were spending in the US while, you know, the European part of the business were more profitable. And then again, that somebody asked, should we double down in Europe and decide to close our business in the US or just double down in the US? You can imagine what side of the table I was at and I lost. So the board decided to double down in Europe. So then I said, hey, happy to continue to help here, but I'm not aligned with this decision. So it was a nice transition. I think three, four months, right? It was nothing like, you know, exiting from one day to the other. Not like Sam Altman getting cut from OpenAI. Yeah, but look, I mean, it was painful back in the day. I'm not going to lie to you. And look, even my co-founder, was on the other side where I thought he was more, you know, kind of blind. So there was some tension and it was not easy for me. I'm not going to lie to you. I learned a lot. It was extremely painful. And that's not what I thought. But And that was your baby. I mean, you were there from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So it was extremely painful. But like my wife says, everything happens for a reason. So while I was in, you know, my second company, I got exposure to human-centered design thinking, right? And... We were building the product together with patients and clinicians and learning a lot. And I love the process so much. So then I started reading about IDEO and the process. And guess what? You know, after leaving my company, I ended up working for IDEO. I'm leading the healthcare business there. So I learned so, so much while I was at IDEO. And then quick story. So while I was at IDEO, one of the leading design and innovation firms in the world with offices in the US, Asia, Europe. I got exposure to so much tech companies entering the healthcare space, new startups, new technologies, pharma providers, payers that they wanted to reinvent themselves. There was a consistent theme across every single, most projects, not every single project. Meaning, even if I was working on building a new diabetes business, you know, building the new business model, everything, or COPD or unique oncology. There was always a mental health component, always a mental health component. So I started working more and more mental health. And then one day, another opportunity was in front of me, which was joining Headspace to help them move more from the wellness to healthcare, being the GM of the digital medicine subsidiary, as well as leading the strategy team there. It was not an easy decision because IDEO was just awesome. But I decided to, from the Bay Area, move to Santa Monica and started Headspace. And while I was there, again, I learned a lot. 
and COVID hit. But guess what? While I was at Headspace, also I learned a lot. The culture there is awesome. But it was so hard, right? As we were developing new products for healthcare to make sure that clinicians were embracing, you know, kind of uh, what we were building, that we're going to use it, that payers will reverse it. So I learned about life stance again, just through another opportunity that came up. I was not searching. I was happy at, you know, headspace, but life stance was kind of perfect fit. Right? I thought, again, this is mental health, right? The mission of life stance, it's so aligned with my personal mission, right? To improve access to affordable, in this case, mental health. The company was at a very interesting stage, right? Through many acquisitions, going a lot, being the leader in the industry, but then COVID hit. Overnight, everything or using, you know, technology for everything versus before it was more kind of face to face with clinicians. So yeah, they offered me to lead the technology team at, at LifeStance and working for an outpatient mental health provider at that point in my career felt like the right thing and working, you know, directly with so many clinicians, right? With this population, it just, I couldn't say no, right? And plus. I think great founding team, great mission, great values. So I decided to join Life since that was almost three years ago. And here I am. It's a really cool journey. And I love what your wife said about, you know, my experience is that I never know where my journey is going to lead me. You know, doors are going to close, doors are going to open. And I've learned that business is not who I am. What I do is not who I am at work, right? It's who I am, who, how I show up in the world. Now I'll say that having a mission driven purpose at work is, is just like, that's awesome. It's like bonus because you're able to be of service and, and give of yourself and see the impact you can have on a community firsthand. So that's really cool. But it's like, who am I when I'm, you know, at the grocery store, when I'm at home with my family, when I'm with my friends, that really truly matters. So I'm interested, Pablo, I mean, like super cool journey. What would you say is one of the most important things that you learned along the way, personally or professionally, and kind of what was life like before and after learning that? I could point to so many different moments in the journey, but, but probably, as I said, it was very painful. My second startup, that moment, and if I learned something on the personal and you know, on the professional side it is. It was so hard at the time, right? So that was 2016 and we were running so fast, again, raising money, moving the company to the U.S. while still most of the team was in Spain. I was traveling nonstop, right, between the U.S., Spain, and also we opened an office in Mexico City because we had some investors in Mexico City. I don't know if it was the right decision, you know, we did it. So. I think we we're trying to do too many things at the same time, running very fast and, and culture, it's everything, right? So making sure that everybody's aligned as you run, making sure that the team back then in Spain understood what we were trying to do in the U.S., right? I don't think I did a good job, to be honest. And on the personal side, also, I asked my wife to move with me to San Francisco. And guess what? I was never in San Francisco. I mean... Not that I was never in San Francisco, but I was traveling a lot, right? So it's also hard and, you know, my father-in-law passed away at that time. So it was all a very painful time. And what I learned to your previous point is 
look, family first always, right? And this is why from that moment, I said, I'm going to check everything with my wife, right? On, my, on the professional side, not just on the personal side, right? Making sure that this is the right thing for us. And also on the professional side, making sure that, look, it's good to grow and, you know, and execute and skill as fast as you can, of course, while you're in healthcare, making sure that, you know, you have the, I think we, we did the right things, right? Making sure you don't break anything. But where I'm going is making sure that while you're doing this, you're also make sure that everybody's aligned, right? And every, and give visibility to everybody, you know, what you're doing when you're young startup running fast, everything changes so quickly. It's not an excuse. You really need to spend enough time, right? To bring people along the journey. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny that you mentioned that. I was just on the line with Gene Kim. He's the author of The Phoenix Project. He just wrote a new book, blank on the title. It's like building a winning organization or something like that. But anyway, we were talking about like the concept of slowifying, I think it was called, but basically how sometimes organizations need to slow down to speed up, right? It's kind of exactly that. Like, how am I aligning, you know, the people? So yeah, I think that's great advice, basically, is what I'm saying. I want to talk about your current role at Life Stance, Pablo. Before we do, I just like to ask favorite book or literary piece, either that you read recently or all time, whatever you uh, prefer. Funny enough, based on our conversation, you're not going to be surprised. Yeah, but I'm reading again. I read it years ago. The Innovator's Dilemma, right, from Christensen. I think it's a great book. And as I was one day thinking about one specific use case about life science, I remember, you know, something about the book and I said, okay, I want to read it again. So it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a great one. I have to reread it too, because I read it when I started Disruptive Innovations years ago. So it's such a good book. I'm glad you bring it up. So you're chief digital officer at Life Stance, you know, leading provider, outpatient mental health and, t- and telehealth. Talk to me, Pablo, a little bit more about your vision for the organization and maybe what you can share about some of the key initiatives you guys are working on. Look, the biggest thing is to improve access, right? And to affordable mental health through technology. So the mental health industry definitely were in a unique situation, right? And unfortunately, the demand is so high, and there are great products out there that can help clinicians. But I'm a big believer of empowering clinicians with tools rather than, you know, I don't think we can ever replace clinicians because there's a gap between supply and demand, right? That's where I'm going. So the vision is always making sure that we empower clinicians with the best tools so they can spend as much time as possible with patients while always meeting patients where we are. What I mean with that is, again, great players in the mental health industry. Some of them are more like brick and mortar kind of clinics versus some others, you know, only telehealth, right? A lot of players there. I do think, look, based on all the hundreds and hundreds of interviews with patients of LifeSense, but also patients that use other services, There are people that like to do everything virtually. There are others that prefer, you know, the in-person connection. But guess what? In most cases, people like to have the option to jump from one channel to the other, right? Because there are certain moments where you just need to talk with somebody in person. 
versus uh, there are other moments that you rather do it from home or from the office or wherever you want, right? So everything that we do, we always try to offer uh, different options to patients, right? While empowering clinicians. And at the end of the day, like just meet people where they are. And that's where we try to move, right? And, and again, I can talk about, you know, specific examples, but. Well, I'll give you one. So I was seeing my therapist in person leading up to COVID. By the way, I, I think every human should have a therapist. That's my opinion, but I digress. So seeing a therapist in person up to COVID, COVID hit and we go virtual. My therapist office is in Manhattan. She's there, you know, one or two days a week. We still have not seen each other in person since COVID hit. It's just kind of pathetic. Like we, we've been trying, but it's just convenient. I have two young daughters, you know, I'm traveling all across the United States. And so right now in my life, meeting virtually is more convenient. Yeah. Whatever works for you. But I don't know. I've also talked to people that say, Hey, this is great. It's way more convenient, but there are certain points, right? Where they feel the need of being in person with a therapist, psychiatrist, you know, whatever the need is. So we offer the option and also through our own booking and intake system, you will be surprised. Even your young people, a lot of people that they want to connect with people in person. Also, I think I forget who I had this discussion with not too long ago, but for addiction treatment, right? In my experience, it's a lot easier for an addict to lie virtually than it is in person, or there's a certain element of human connection that really only happens in person, at least initially, where it's easier to skirt things virtually than it is in person. I think it's still important either way, because no matter how you're planting the seed, the seed gets planted, but the more you can do that interaction in person, I think it's significant. Yeah, I agree with you. What about challenges that Life Stance is facing as an organization? Yeah, look. One of the challenges that comes to mind was we've made a bunch of acquisitions since, you know, the company was founded. And as you can imagine, right, standardizing all the different tools, processes, an interesting journey, and you cannot do this overnight. I think made great progress, but it's been a lot of work over the last three years. I've been also on the other side, right, where you just want to, you know, keep doing what you're doing, even if you're being acquired. Look, we've been trying to be very empathetic during the journey. And if there are better processes, different places, let's just learn, explore. As I said, you cannot do this overnight. But at the end of the day, especially as a public company, when we're talking about technology, you need to standardize. And I'm not talking about just one way of doing things, but at least platform. Yeah. Yes. A platform, right? Yeah. That's what we talk in healthcare, like for a system, for example. Especially when you're dealing with clinicians, a lot of people, they think they're very special. And listen, they are in a lot of cases, right? So we always talk about, you know, we need to standardize, but we can still specialize, right? So we can maintain your lane. We just need someone to be able to traverse wherever they need to go seamlessly. They can still come in through your front door, but if they want to come through the main door and then go to you, how do we make that happen, right? How do we make those processes seamless? Yeah. Yeah. I like where you're going. When I was talking about the hybrid model, right? In person and virtual, we've mapped the whole patient journey. The way how we've mapped the journey into you know, different moments, always with the optionality, right? Of 
choose the path that you want, right? Give optionality, but making sure that you have a consistent experience across different channels. Yeah. You, you guys did the patient journey mapping exercise yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. I really, I, I love that. So that's the best practice, I would say. Something that I advise and we work with clients on often. Any other best practices that you'd recommend any you know, IT leaders or business leaders listening to the podcast? A big one for me, it's co-designing with, you know, kind of clinicians and patients. I learn a lot. You make a bunch of assumptions. And so it's very important. The way how we do things is we get their input. We prototype with them. We pilot with them. And we scale different processes or products with them. I know it sounds like a lot of work and on both sides, on us and also on clinicians. Guess what? Not all of them, but some of them, they really want to be part of it because at the end of the day, it's, they're going to use it. It needs to fit into their workflows. Yeah. What I'll tell you from an organizational change management standpoint, you know, when you're talking healthcare and you're talking about implementing technology that clinicians are going to leverage, if you are not doing that as a best practice, you're setting yourself up for an arduous, like it might take a little bit more time on the front end. But you're going to have a much better experience ultimately for the consumer, the customer and the doc. And you're going to have a much more seamless rollout of whatever the technology is exponentially more efficient and, uh, and quicker than if you don't do that. And then you're dragging everyone through the process. So I, that's a great one to bring up. And it's funny too, like disruptive innovators, you know, we do live events too. And what I'll do is wherever we're doing the event, like we're going to do an event in LA in February. And I literally go to you guys and I'm like, what do you want to do? Do we want to, you know, and I'm doing an event in Cleveland in December. They're like top golf. They want to do top golf. So I'm like, all right, top golf. I was going to do something else, but I let that drive whatever we want to do because that's, it's a best practice. So silly example, but so a couple last questions, Pablo, one would be any innovative, I think your company is inherently innovative, but is there any innovative technologies on the horizon that you're excited about that stand to, you know, support the vision of life stands as an organization? I'm sure 90% of people say AI. That is the buzzword for sure. Look, I've been working, you know, with AI over the last few years. And I do think now we're in a very special moment because look, where the technology's at, but also since some people can touch it, explore it, Right, they're more comfortable thinking about how we can leverage it in different areas. So I'm not just going to say AI. Definitely, I think we're in a very interesting time where, like I said, even clinicians that before I even remember, it's like, hey, are you interested about exploring, you know, AI for clinician documentation? Right? It's like, yeah, I don't know, you know. And now they're the ones pushing for that, right? So I'm excited. I'm excited. And I'm not just talking about AI for all the you know, sexy stuff, fancy. I mean, yes, you know, but I'm just talking about there are so many processes where we can leverage AI and automate and, like I said, empower clinicians to remove some of the more tedious kind of tasks with technology. So I agree wholeheartedly. And I mean, the use case that I always talk about that's kind of behind the scenes, under the covers is knowledge management. So the basically just the ingestion of legacy data systems processes that live in multiple different technology stacks and then 
making that queryable and, and conversational. I mean, the, just the impact that itself can have on so many different departments and so on is just it's significant. And the ability for them to ask the AI about improvements that can be made, how we can streamline, like literally, it's going to be remarkable. It's really exciting. So I would agree with you there. What about the mental health industry in general? You know, with the understanding that you don't have a, a crystal ball, where do you see the industry going in general over the next number of years? Or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? Like you said, unfortunately, we have a gap, right, between supply and demand. So talking about technology, connecting with, you know, what we just discussed, I do think we need to empower clinicians so they just spend as much time as possible with patients, right? And there's so much, so many areas that we can automate, but we'll never replace clinicians. That's just my personal opinion. We can give tools to both patients and clinicians. So maybe your interactions with clinicians are way more, you know, kind of specific, right? And when I'm saying specific, not that I'm talking about treatment going 100% automated. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is so much stuff, right? It before and after kind of the visit. So with technology, maybe we can solve more. So then you just, you know, spend the time you need 100% focused on talking with a clinician, right? Right. That's it. I mean, that's in my opinion too, the dream, right? How do I make it as frictionless, personalized, radically convenient as possible? for both the customer and the clinician. So yeah, agreed. Well, Pablo, this has been awesome. Last question I would have for you is just if you could go back five, 10, even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Great question. Again, just learn as fast as you can, where are your gaps and, you know, and surround yourself going back to the first thing I said, surround yourself with people that can help you, that you can trust, and people that help you scale. I had the pleasure of working with some people. I've been working with them for many years. They were with me at IDEO, then at Headspace, now at LifeStands. And I learned from them so much on a daily basis. Now, this is the most important thing. You know, early on in your career, you think you know more than what you do, right? You think you do more, you know, yourself, that you didn't, you know, so much help. Guess what? That's not true. So that's the big piece of advice that I'll give myself. Love that. Now, I, I can't see my own blind spots. So if I'm not going to people to hold up that mirror, I'm doing myself a disservice. So it's great that you learned that early through those bumps and bruises. It took me a little bit longer, but you know, I got a good cabinet nowadays. So anyway, Pablo, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, David. It was a great conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.